In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and in all the countries where you have scattered us, because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us, because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing us on us a great disaster. Under the whole heaven nothing has been ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, O God, hear the prayers and petition of your servants. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. 
For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to prayer, to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. No one understands this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come to destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let me begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your timeless word to us in the Bible. We ask that you be with us now as we seek to understand it and have it transform the way that we live so that we may live for your glory. Amen. Uh, Good morning, everyone. I'm excited to be here today and teaching from God's word. It'll be helpful to have your Bibles open in front of you as we work our way through this passage. Uh, For those of you who know me, you'll probably know that I'm a bit of a sports fan. It's the overwhelming uh, delight of success and victory. keeps me coming back for more, uh, despite the ever-present possibility of failure and defeat. And the highs and lows of competition. Uh, You might find those highs and lows in sports, like I do, or in some other competitive activity. But ultimately, I think everyone likes to win, and everyone dislikes losing. Losing once... It's bad enough, but when you're on a losing streak over months or even years, that's downright terrible. And unfortunately, I'm a Carlton fan, so I know the heartache and the despair that comes with many years without finals or premiership success. It's enough to drive you to your knees, crying out, how long, oh Lord? How long will my team continue to lose? Well, prayers just like that, they were answered for many long-suffering sports fans around the world in 2016. Uh, in Australia, the Western Bulldogs, they won the AFL Premiership for the first time in 62 years. With how they've gone since, it seems like they peaked at the right time. 
uh, in the NRL. The Cronulla Sharks won their first ever premiership after being in the competition for 49 years. Overseas, LeBron James, he led the Cleveland Cavaliers to their first NBA championship after 46 unsuccessful years. In baseball, the Chicago Cubs, who had not won a World Series since 1908, ended their 108-year drought. And in the most shocking and unexpected result in world sports history, Leicester City won the English Premier League despite being favourites to come last at the start of the season. Well, they won for the first time in their club's 132-year history. All up, amazingly, a collective 397 years of defeat and heartbreak were ended for long-suffering fans of these teams. As we come today to Daniel chapter 9, it's like December 2015 for Daniel. He's had many years of heartbreak in exile in Babylon, but he is filled with anticipation as he believes that the drought will soon be broken. He believes his version of that magical 2016 year is just around the corner. And it is this hope that inspires his prayer that we find here in chapter 9. Today I want to show you how Daniel's prayer and God's immediate response fit together to show us the big picture of Daniel chapter 9. Let's start by looking again at verse 1. We're told that this event takes place in the first year of King Darius the Mede. This is helpful to know as the book of Daniel is not in chronological sequence. This event, Daniel 9, lines up with Daniel in the lion's den in chapter 6, which also takes place in the first year of King Darius's reign. And we can see in verse 2 that there are great expectations for what will happen at this time. Daniel understands from Jeremiah's prophecies, which can be found in the book of Jeremiah, chapters 25 and 29, that the Israelites would spend 70 years in exile before God would restore them. And that 70-year period is almost complete. But that doesn't motivate Daniel to joyous celebrations. No, instead, we see in verse 3 that in sackcloth and ashes, signs of humiliation, he is brought to his knees in prayer before God. Now, the first thing that I want to show you today, and you can see the point in your outline, is the two main bases that Daniel has for his prayer. The first main basis which causes Daniel to plead with with God in prayer is the character of his God. We see in verse 4 that Daniel's prayer begins with, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The character of the God to whom Daniel is praying to becomes immediately apparent in this opening statement. The God of Daniel is great, is awesome, is faithful to his covenant promises, a covenant of which the defining feature is love. But the character of this great and awesome God, it's immediately contrasted with the character of his wayward people. Despite being the very objects of God's covenant of love, the people of Israel have rebelled against the great and awesome God. And the nature and gravity of their rebellion is so horrific that it moves Daniel to confess the sins of his people. And there's much to confess. On eight separate occasions between verses 5 and 11, Daniel begins a confession with, we have. In verses 5 and 9, there is a confession that in their wickedness, we have rebelled against God. In verses 5 and 10, there is a confession that we have turned and disobeyed the laws of God. In verse 6, there is a confession that God had sent messengers to warn them, but we have failed to listen. And finally, the overarching confession in verses 5, 8 and 11, we have sinned and done wrong. 
Now, at all other points of the book, Daniel has been an example of faithfulness to God, despite extreme pressure. Yet despite his total faithfulness, as described throughout the book, here in his prayer, Daniel counts himself among the sinful and wicked people who have rebelled against God. His prayer clearly uses the inclusive language of we have rather than they have. But why does Daniel pray this prayer of confession? We see that in ver- between verse 11 and 14, Daniel's confession moves to an acknowledgement that everything that has happened, the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple, the exile into Babylon, it's all Israel's fault. We know that it's really tempting to blame God when things don't go the way that we had planned. To say, God, how could you let this happen? I thought you were supposed to be good. As an exile in Babylon, surely this temptation was there for Daniel. But Daniel knows that while Israel has been unfaithful to the law, God has remained faithful to the law and to his word. In both verse 11 and 13, we see this explicitly, that what has happened is just as what was written in the law of Moses. And the law of Moses that Daniel is referring to can be found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26. Summarizing that chapter, there's a twofold promise, a blessing and a curse. In the first half of the chapter, God promises that if the people follow his decrees and carefully obey his commands, he will bless them and grant them peace from their enemies. In the second half of the chapter, God warns that if they do not listen, but instead they reject his commands, their enemies will defeat them and they will be pursued and scattered among the nations. So Daniel acknowledges that just as it is written, so it has become. But as we saw with how Daniel started his prayer, he knows the character of his God. Yes, God's righteousness and faithfulness to his promises demand that the rebellion of the Israelites well, can't go unaccounted for, yet God's character is also that of mercy and forgiveness. You can see that clearly in verse 9. It's because of God's merciful and forgiving character that in the next section of the prayer, uh, verses 15 to 19, Daniel can ask God to turn away from his anger and once again look with favour upon Jerusalem and the people of Israel. For just as Daniel knows the blessing and the curse of Leviticus 26, he also knows the final part of that chapter. In the final six verses, God promises that when the Israelites are scattered in exile, if they will confess their sins and turn from their hostility towards him, he will not reject them. It's this very promise of restoration and redemption that motivates Daniel to bring his prayer of confession before the Lord, knowing that God will hear his prayer and in his mercy turn away from his anger in faithfulness to his promise. So Daniel brings his prayer of confession before God because he knows the character of his God. Now there is also a second basis for Daniel's prayer. In the whole book of Daniel, this is the only chapter where God's divine name of Yahweh is mentioned. And it's mentioned because Daniel's heart is deeply troubled because the reputation of God's name has become slandered. Now it's appalling when someone's name is slandered in our time, but it was even more appalling in biblical times. See, a person's name was not just the sound that you made to get their attention. A person's name described the very nature and being of that person. So what do we know about God's name, Yahweh? Well, the name Yahweh, it means the one who is and who will be. And it was first revealed to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And once it was revealed to Moses, 
God's name is to be made known far and wide, and it also becomes the guarantee of his promises. Six times between the revelation of his name in the burning bush until the Israelites pass through the Red Sea, God says that everything that he is doing is so that both the Israelites and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And on another five occasions during this period, his promises are marked with the guarantee of I am Yahweh. And indeed, God's name is made known to both the Israelites and the Egyptians when he fulfills the promises made in his name by redeeming the Israelites out of Egypt. Daniel emphasizes this in his prayer. Look again at verse 15, where Daniel exclaims, Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. There is a clear cause and effect here. The redemption of the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt being the cause and the effect being the establishment of the enduring name of the one who is and who will be. Because of this cause and effect, there's an enduring connection between God's name and the Israelite people. They are the ones who bear his name. They reflect his name. It's like wearing a work uniform in a public place. Not only do your actions represent you individually, but they also represent your company because of your uniform. People will be able to observe you and make judgments about you, good and bad, and also about your company. So it was with the Israelites and the name Yahweh. When they lived in obedience to God's commands, they exalted his name and the surrounding nations feared them because of God's name. Conversely, God's name was dishonoured and blasphemed when his people disobeyed his commands. But beyond each of the Israelite people individually bearing the name of God, there was a place that was the epicentre of God's name, the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was the most magnificent structure in all of Jerusalem, and appropriately so, because it was God's house. When construction of the temple building was complete, God's glory in the form of a dark cloud descended and filled the temple. God then appeared to King Solomon and confirmed that on this building he has put his name forever and there his heart will always be. The temple was where you could go to be in the presence of God. It's where sacrifice and offering were made to repair broken relationship with God. In summary, the temple as the dwelling place for God's name was the very heart of all of Israel. I spent a considerable amount of time diving into the significance of both God's name and the temple as a place that bears God's name because I believe it will help us understand the heartbreak and the anguish that is present in Daniel's prayer. Firstly, we know from Daniel chapter 6 that when Daniel prayed, he purposely faced towards Jerusalem, ever being mindful of it. And as Daniel looks towards Jerusalem, he's reminded that the very heart of all of Israel, the temple, was no longer there. It was burnt to the ground, totally destroyed by the Babylonians. And to make matters worse, prior to its destruction, all the holy articles of the temple were pillaged and taken back to Babylon and placed in the treasure houses of the Babylonian gods. Israel's heart had been pillaged and destroyed, the ultimate insult to both the people and their God. And it's more than Daniel can endure. In total desperation, he falls to his knees, begging and pleading with God, to restore Jerusalem. Feel the emotion in these pleas. Look with me in verse 12. Daniel exclaims, Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done 
like what has been done to Jerusalem. In verse 17, he pleads with God to look with favour on his desolate sanctuary for his sake. In verse 18, he begs God to hear his prayer and see the desolation of the city that bears his name. The finale of his prayer is one of total desperation. In verse 19, Daniel says, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. In summary, Daniel's prayer moves from a time of confession, which leads into an acknowledgement of fault, and finally concludes with pleas of restoration. Daniel's prayer shows us that it was Israel's rebellion against Yahweh that caused desolation to come upon the people and the building that bears his name. And what is God's response to Daniel's prayer? The first thing to note is that the response is immediate, even whilst Daniel is still in prayer. This, is, this point is emphasized at the beginning in both verse 20 and 21. And it is Gabriel, the same angel who came to bring uh, the interpretation to Daniel's vision in chapter 8, who has once again appeared to Daniel, this time to bring him the response to his prayer. As we look at verse 22, see that Abraham, Gabriel has come to bring Daniel insight and understanding. The response of bringing insight and understanding is a connection back to the very thing that motivated the prayer to begin with. Thinking back to the very start of the chapter, in verse 2, Daniel was motivated to prayer through having understanding from the scriptures that the exile would last 70 years. But now Gabriel has made it clear that he has come to bring true understanding. This purpose is repeated three times verse 22, 23, and 25. The point here is that Daniel did not, he didn't understand the meaning of Jeremiah's prophecy, but no, it had a reference beyond its most obvious reference to the ending of the Babylonian exile. It's this future reference that Gabriel comes to bring to Daniel. And whilst Gabriel comes to bring understanding, ironically, the message of the 77s that he brings, it's incredibly difficult to understand. Throughout the years, various interpretations of this prophecy have been made by biblical scholars, with each interpretation different from the next. Uh, This led one biblical scholar, James A. Montgomery, to comment that the history of the explanation of the 77s is the dismal swamp of Old Testament criticism. So grab your gumboots, as it may get a little muddy, as we attempt to navigate our way through the dismal swamp. And whilst the details may get a bit muddy, I hope that by the end of today you'll see the big picture with crystal clarity. Now, the first and most divisive question that needs to be answered regarding this prophecy, is it chronological or is it chronographical? What I mean is, is this prophecy a precise means of predicting the future or is it a symbolic scheme of the future? Well, let's discuss the first option, chronological. All scholars agree that the sevens mentioned in this prophecy are not the seven-day period of a week, but are in fact periods of seven years. This is because just as the weekly calendar was divided in lots of sevens, so too was the yearly calendar divided in lots of sevens, with every seventh year to be a sabbatical year. It's for this reason that scholars understand that the 77s, or 70 weeks, in this prophecy can be read as 70 lots of seven years, equal to 490 years. So when's this period of 490 years begin? Well, looking at verse 25, we're told that the starting point is from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, so when was that? 
So on the screen behind me, you can see nine different possible options for the time that the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. As each of these events involves a word going out from an authoritative figure, could be argued, and in fact it has been argued, that any of these nine events is the beginning of the 490-year period. As these nine events span an 160-year period, you can feel that that swamp is starting to get pretty muddy. Huh? How can we possibly know which one of these events is the start of the 490-year period? Well, perhaps instead of starting at the start, we could start at the end and reverse engineer our way back to the solution. In verses 26 and 27... Oh, no, I've gone too far. There we go. You just move to the next one, Matthew. Thank you. So in verse 26 and 27, we're told that in the final seven, that there is a ruler who is to come, who will put the anointed one to death, destroy the city and the sanctuary, put an end to sacrifice and offering, and set up in the temple an abomination that causes desolation. Now there are two main theories for who this ruler is in the final seven. Uh, Next slide, please. Uh, so the first theory is that the ruler who is to come was Antiochus Epiphanes IV, king of the Seleucid Empire, who devastated Jerusalem in 168 BC. Antiochus had the Jewish high priest Ananias III murdered, therefore putting to death an anointed one. He also had an altar to the Greek god Zeus set up in the temple and had pigs sacrificed on that altar. These events fulfil some of the statements in the prophecy, however not all the prophetic statements are fulfilled by Antiochus. Whilst he did bring about a tremendous amount of suffering upon the Jews, both the city of Jerusalem and the temple were not totally destroyed by him. Uh, Next slide. Uh, The second main theory is that the ruler who was to come was Roman general Titus, who seized Jerusalem in 70 AD. This theory, theory fulfills the requirement of the city and sanctuary being destroyed and sacrifice and offering being put to an end, as the temple was burned to the ground in the battles between the Romans and the Jews. And those who subscribe to this theory say that the anointed one who was put to death was Jesus. How given that occurred about 37 years prior, so those two events are not within the same seven-year period as the prophecy says that they should be. So for our chronological assessment, we have two possible endpoints, each with merit, but both with gaps, and nine possible start points. To further complicate matters, no matter which starting point, which endpoint you choose, the math, it just doesn't add up. All these numbers and math and none of it quite lining up. Who just feels stuck in the mud of the dismal swamp? Uh, next slide, please. So trying to find a precise chronological interpretation of this prophecy has proved extremely challenging and caused much debate throughout the years. But perhaps this prophecy is so difficult to precisely interpret because the prophecy is deliberately imprecise Consider the differences between Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 9. When Gabriel appears to Daniel to interpret his dream in chapter 8, he explicitly states that the ram is symbolic of the Median Persian Empire and the goat is symbolic of the Greek Empire. In contrast, here in chapter 9, Gabriel makes no mention of Antiochus or of Titus or of any other ruler to come. He's deliberately imprecise. And because of this deliberate imprecision, we once again see the timeless pattern 
that has been present throughout the symbology of the dreams and visions in the book of Daniel. Earlier in this series, in both chapters 2 and again in chapter 7, we saw the pattern of beastly earthly kingdoms rising to power, opposing God's people, waging war and causing desolation. And these earthly kingdoms are unnamed because there was a timeless applicability. And it's exactly the same here in chapter 9. The main point of Gabriel's prophecy is not to figure out exactly when or exactly who the ruler and kingdom to come is. The main point of Gabriel's prophecy is that just like Israel has, so too will other earthly kingdoms also rebel against Yahweh and bring desolation and destruction upon the people and the building that bear his name. Now, having methodically worked our way through Daniel's prayer and the two main bases for his prayer, and having investigated the possible meanings of the 77s prophesied by Gabriel in the immediate response, I want to show you how these two things fit together to show you the big picture of chapter 9. Can we go to the next slide? Oh, one back, please. Thank you. Uh, so in Daniel's prayer, it was Israel's rebellion against Yahweh that caused desolation to come upon the people and the building that bears God's name. In Gabriel's prophecy, it was the rulers yet to come who will also rebel against Yahweh and his anointed one, causing desolation to come upon the people and the building that bears God's name. Uh, next slide. Therefore, we see the big picture of Daniel 9 being humanity's rebellion, both Israel and their enemies, against Yahweh, bringing desolation upon the people and the building that bear God's name. Whilst believing that the 70-year period of exile had, uh, and heartbreak would soon end, motivated Daniel to prayer, Gabriel comes to bring understanding that the desolation will extend beyond the 70 years of exile into the future until the time appointed by God. Now that's a grim and not entirely comforting outlook. Uh, it's certainly not the response that Daniel was hoping for. Whilst it sounds egregious that the temple will be built back up again, only to be destroyed again, and that sacrifice will be put to an end, viewing Daniel 9 through the lens of the New Testament will bring a whole new perspective. Uh, next slide. Through the lens of the New Testament, we don't grieve the destruction of the physical temple in Jerusalem. In John chapter 2, Jesus predicted that the temple will be destroyed and raised again in three days. Now, of course, Jesus is not speaking of the physical temple building, but instead was speaking regarding himself, the very being of God, making his dwelling in flesh among people. Jesus is saying that we don't need the physical temple building to meet with God. We can meet with God through Jesus. Uh, next slide. And through the tearing down of the old in Jesus' death and the raising of the new in his resurrection, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, teaches that you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Oh, I missed one. And rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. There's no longer a physical building in Jerusalem in which God fills with his presence. The heart of every believer is now the dwelling place of the Lord. What great news. Next slide, please. Similarly, through the lens of the New Testament, we don't grieve that sacrifice will be put to an end. In fact, we celebrate it. 
Hebrews 9 and 10, they provide the detailed argument that the blood of animals sacrificed on an ongoing daily basis was at best only able to bring outward ceremonial cleansing and lacked the power to truly take away sins. In stark contrast, the blood of Jesus, the unblemished Lamb of God, sacrificed once, has the power to make us holy, perfectly clean, forgiven. Sacrifice has indeed been put to an end. What a truly wonderful thing that is. So the grim and not entirely comforting outlook we're given in the Old Testament is completely turned on its head when we, when we view it through the lens of the New Testament. But what does this actually mean for you? How does it affect your day-to-day life? Let me draw two applications from another prayer that has much in common with Daniel's prayer. That prayer being the Lord's Prayer. Uh, next slide. So in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' first priority is for the name of the Father to be hallowed. We don't use the word hallowed very often, so people might not be familiar with it. That means greatly revered and honoured. We saw that Daniel was aggrieved when God's name was slandered and motivated to prayer, asking God to restore his name to its rightful hallowed status. And just as it was for Daniel, and so too for Jesus, our first priority in prayer should be for God's name to be hallowed. Just as there was a connection between the Israelite people and God's name in Daniel's time, so too is there connections between Christians and Jesus' name for all time. Revelation 14 says that the name of Jesus and the name of the Father will be written across the foreheads of believers. It's like they've taken a big stamp with their name on it and gone, bang! There their names are for all to see. Now imagine if every time you looked in the mirror this week, you saw the name of Jesus written across your forehead. I think that would certainly have an effect on what you go do next. Now if you believe in Jesus, you bear his name. You've been adopted into his family and you have the family name emblazoned upon you. So live like it. Be the people you are made to be. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul implores the Christians there that whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. If this sounds at all familiar, this is because it's exactly our magnification purpose. As people who bear the name of Jesus, we magnify the glory of God, Father, Son and Spirit, as we orient our whole lives around serving and enjoying him. Living for God's glory, it's the first and most important priority in our lives. Hallowed be his name. As a believer, you bear his name. So whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, live for his glory. And next slide. And Jesus' second priority in the Lord's Prayer is for the Father's kingdom to come. The world around us is in clear rebellion against God, opposing both God and his people, continuing the pattern of earthly, beastly kingdoms that we've seen all throughout this series on Daniel. But we've also seen in this series that just as quickly as earthly kingdoms come, so too will earthly kingdoms go. So our priority in prayer should be for the eternal kingdom of the eternal king to come. Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 say that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue make the confession that he is Lord. Here at Trinity Church Golden Grove, we long for more people to swear allegiance to Jesus. It's the whole reason this church was planted here three years ago. We love having visitors and guests. And we want everyone who walks through those doors to meet Jesus and to see him as the eternal king who will rule forever and ever. 
But if you don't see Jesus as your king, it's our most heartfelt desire that you will continue to investigate who Jesus is and what he has done for you, and ultimately that you would make him your king. Maybe you could even do that today. And for those of us who see Jesus as our king, just as Daniel looked towards Jerusalem and was brought to his knees in prayer by the desolation that he saw, we too should be brought to our knees as we look at the world around us. Our world is clearly not as it should be. We long for the new heaven and the new earth described in Revelation 21. Well, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There'll be no temple in the new holy city. But that is far from devastating news. There's no longer any need for a temple. It's God's dwelling place is no longer confined to a building. It's now among all the people. This new heaven and new earth is the furthest thing possible from an abomination that causes desolation. There's nothing impure will ever be brought into it. What a joyous future, secure for those who put their trust in the name of the eternal King, Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, let your kingdom come. You are the eternal King, and every knee will bow before you, and every tongue make the confession that you are Lord. We pray for those people on each of our hearts who we wish would come to make that confession before you. We ask that the Holy Spirit work in their lives to break down any barriers they have in their hearts and bring them into your awaiting arms. And Lord, hallowed be your name. We thank you that you accept into your family all who come to you in repentance and humility and you imprint the family name on their foreheads. We ask that the Holy Spirit guide us so that whatever we do, whether in word or in deed, we would live all of our lives bringing glory to your name. Amen.